be seated. So we'll conclude our sermon series today in the text we're about to read, 2 Peter chapter 1, just a few verses. After Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We pray your blessings upon us now, our fathers, we hear this. Move in us by your spirit, in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as we've seen now for these few weeks, this text um, kind of opens up for us a, a, an enormous and I think very underappreciated dimension of Christmas, and that is that God took our nature, like that we know pretty well, God took our nature so that, as Peter says, we could share his nature. God took our nature so we could share his nature. He took on the fullness of our humanity, right? And he broke the power of sin and death in our flesh so that you and I can be restored to what God made us to be, which is miniatures, as Herman Bovink says, miniatures of God's character and God's activity in the world. That's what human beings are meant to be, to, to be mirrors, images of God in the world. And I've, I've kind of tried to paraphrase verses 3 and 4 in what I've called pastoral English, Peter says to, to you and me and to his readers, he says, God's power has given you everything you need to live and be like him. Everything you need. How? Through knowing him. The one who called you by showing you his own glorious excellence in his son, and in that display of his excellence made awesome promises that you will share it because he has freed you from the ruin of a sinful world. So, even as you believe God's promises... Get busy adding excellence to your faith. Amen? You're going to share the excellence of God. That is his promise. And as you believe that promise, then get busy. Make every effort, Peter says, to add these excellences to your faith. And now as Peter has kind of mapped for us this journey that we're taking into God's own excellence, to be mirrors of it, to be miniatures of it, it's no surprise at all that in, in the end we come to love, to brotherly affection and love, because God is love. The Bible is quite clear. He who does, he who does not love does not know God. I don't, there's no way in which we more excellently image God's excellence than in love. But I think our modern understanding of love is a mess, quite honestly. I think that is a word that is 
very much misunderstood today. And so I'd like to take, as we begin, just a moment, and I just want to think together about something that we think we know well, but I want to think about it anyway. I want to just think for a moment about God's love for us. Before we talk about our love, I just want to think again about God's love for sinners in particular. Because the, the modern idea of love is, as you're very aware, is that love is warm, positive, affirming feelings about everything about everybody, right? It's warm, positive, affirming feelings about everything about everybody. That's actually a complete balderdash. What we really mean is love is warm, affirming, positive feelings about the right people. Okay, so it, it's kind of a, you know, double-tongued, but th that's the idea, warm, positive, affirming feelings about everything about everybody. And, of course, you can see immediately that that is not at all what God's love is like. God perfectly loves what is good, and that means God necessarily hates what is bad. These are not incompatible. God passionately, perfectly loves goodness, and that means he hates what is bad. And so his perfect love for his creatures is actually in full harmony. It's not in any way contradictory, contradicted by his wrath against the disorder and the distortion and the ruin of sin. It is because God loves goodness so much that he hates what is evil and bad. And actually, if that's not true, there's no way to explain Christmas that we're here to celebrate today, right? Because Jesus came to what? To do something about our sin, <laughs> to cleanse us from our sin. If God, if God doesn't hate sin, why is Jesus even here? But we need to tread extremely carefully here as we think about this. Because reacting to somewhat mushy views of God's love, views in which there really is no place at all for the demands of moral goodness, there's really no place in some of these mushy views for the idea of God's righteous judgment. Reacting against those kind of mushier views, many Christians can skew to thinking about God's love as if it operates in a system of strict justice. Meaning God's love is kind of like activated, quote unquote, only if strict justice is satisfied. All right, so we can skew over this other direction, that God only loves once strict justice is satisfied. And if you think about that way of looking at God's love, yes, God loves, but only once strict justice has been satisfied. If you think about his love that way, that leaves you with at least one enormous mystery, which we talked about briefly when we, about a year ago in, in the book of Jonah, and that mystery is this. If God's love is ultimately based on strict justice, why did he create anything in the first place? There is no creature who deserves to exist. The most basic gift God has given in his love to any creature is existence. You have being. But there's no way that can be based in strict justice because none of us deserves to exist. So it seems like this strict justice calculus at least doesn't fit that well. And as you explore why God made creatures, what you realize is the deepest reason for God's creating creatures is not strict justice. The deepest reason is just simply God's good pleasure. God delights that cr his creatures should exist. He loves the being of that which he has made. He, he wills it into being out of his love, and he delights in what he has made. He delights in his purposes for his creatures. It's just God created because of it, it was his good pleasure to do so, not because any creature deserved to exist. All right, so far so good. But I'm sure many of you would say, rightly, okay, fine. 
But if those creatures God has made sin against him, they rebel against him, they break his law, well, now surely we have to say no more love, no love for them until God's strict justice is fully satisfied. But again, this leaves us with a mystery. If God's love now for sinners is ultimately based on strict justice, here's the question. Why send his son? Because no sinner deserves to have a savior provided, right? If God had acted towards sinners strictly out of purely out of strict justice, there would have been no plan to save because God would have just let his justice run its course and every human being who sinned against him could have just been consigned to eternal destruction and it would have been perfectly just. That would be strict justice. And just as in creation, when we start di deep diving into why did God create things, when you and I deep, down, deep dive down into the gushing fountains of the love of God in his own being, here is what we discover. That even as God made all things simply for his good pleasure, God seeks and saves sinners simply for his good pleasure. It was the good pleasure of God's love that activated his great plan and his great work to then satisfy his justice for our salvation. It was out of the, the infinite fountains of God's love and the good pleasure of his love that he, he formed the plan and he sent his son to satisfy his justice so that we could be saved. Jesus did not come into this world to make God willing to save. He came into this world because God is willing to save. And beloved, I believe that we need to dwell on that because I think sometimes we look at what Jesus has done as if somehow he sort of, you know, almost kind of manipulated the system to get God to now love us. And so we're just kind of treading on the, the edge of this precipice that God sort of barely loves us. He, he's just kind of done what's absolutely necessary. And so now he can love us because this huge justice problem has been satisfied. That's not totally false, but it doesn't go nearly deep enough. The only reason there was a plan to save is because of the, the, the immensity of God's love. And it reminds us as we think about the love of God that God's love can will and plan and execute something that is beyond the calculus of strict justice. All creation bears witness to this. The very existence of things bears witness that God's love can will something that is beyond the bounds of strict justice. And what I'm saying then is that the wisdom of God's love and the goodness of God's love, they're not less than strictly just. After all, the cross. But they are ever so much more than strictly just. That is why we have an eternal plan that there should be a cross at all. Now, all of that lies behind Peter's instruction, believing in that unfathomable love of God, ultimately springing from his good pleasure to save sinners. Add to your faith in that love, brotherly affection, and love that image his. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So the question then is, how do we become miniatures of such love as that? So let's turn now from God's love for sinners to our love for one another. And let's just ponder this for a moment. These two virtues, brotherly affection and love, like the others we've looked at, they require effort. Make every effort to add these. Like this is a workout. 
You know, we talk as if love is what would happen if we all just acted naturally. Ha! Comes to mind. <laughs> You've got to work to become full of brotherly affection and love. And so as we turn now toward a new year of life together, I'd like to offer first just a quick point of clarity and then a few practices to practice. Here's the point of clarity. As we think about mirroring, imaging the love of God in our lives, here's the point of clarity. I wish I didn't need to clarify this, but we do in our time. One way that our love images God's love is in its local rootedness, but also its global reach. Christian love, mirroring God's love, has local rootedness and, at the same time, global reach. This is what I mean. Think about God's love for you. God loves you, little human, right where you are. He has a particular relationship with you, where you are, and he's committed to that relationship with you. He doesn't love you as part of a giant blob of humanity. He loves you. He has a particular committed relationship with you, and at the same time, God loves the world. Hit the reach of his love is as wide as humanity. And Christian love is that way too. Christian love is both communal and cosmopolitan, if I can put it that way. We are committed to the people that God has actually put around us right here and now, and we are wide open to those God is bringing to us. It's both and. We settle into the relationships that God has given to us here and now, and we commit to them, right? We invest in them. We're, we, we do not run off to have adventures abroad every time the local relationships God has given to us end up being difficult or boring. G.K. Chesterton, I've quoted this to you many times, he said, you know, the real adventurer is the one who can love the neighbors on his block. Because we all think we could love the neighbor on the other side of the world. But we commit to and we invest in and we are locally grounded and we are into these relationships and we, we invest in them with all of our heart. But we also resist the allure of comfortable exclusivity. We are wide open, even as we love locally, we are wide open to brothers and sisters from outside, from afar, who may seem like utter strangers to us, very, very different from us, from far away, as it were. We are wide open to them because the whole world is our Father's kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers because in doing so, many have entertained angels without realizing it. The bond that we as Christians have in Christ relativizes all other bonds of blood, all other bonds of locality, all other bonds of race or, or you know, culture or whatever it might be. The bond that we have in Christ is the bond. And it makes us wide open to all of Jesus' people, however different they may seem from us at the moment. And we are, we are welcoming them into our life even as we live our life and are rooted in it. So that's a point of clarity, and I think right now in our world that is something that desperately needs to be said because that is the way that the love of the church is completely different from other loves. That is a way in which we as Christians mirror the love of God in a way that is truly world-changing, and I think you can see that especially in our time. But both our faithful love, kind of locally where we have our people, and the hospitable dimension of our Christian love, both the faithful and the hospitable, are nourished through practices. And I want to give you some practices on the back half of this that we can think about as we turn toward this new year. You have to practice, make effort to develop brotherly affection and love. So what are some of these practices? 
the first I'd like to suggest is the practice of giving thanks. Giving thanks. Gratitude is acknowledging that these people God has called me to love are his creation, his creatures, and they are therefore his gift. Now, I know you all know that, and we can sit here today, and we can say very easily, yes, my brothers and sisters are a gift. They are God's creation. I should admire his creation in them because he made them, and I should be grateful for them. But I can ask you guys a very direct question, and I had to ask myself this all week. For how many of these people have you consciously, recently, given God thanks? How often do you just, for your family, friends, neighbors, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, do you consciously give thanks that God created this person and gave them to me in my life? Why do we not, why are we not thankful for people often? There might be many reasons. I think we should be honest that we are naturally quite inattentive to God's creation. God has made so many wonderful things that we just don't choose to notice, and people are among them. I've had moments when I have woken up decades into marriage to the shocking reality of this woman I'm married to, and it's almost like I see her as if I've not seen her before, and I find myself full of gratitude, but it's shame on me that I'm so kind of like, you know, people become like furniture in our lives, don't they? I mean, how often do you notice the furniture in your house? We're just naturally inattentive, and of course, there's been all kinds of work done on our shrinking capacity in the modern world for what the older writers called wonder. That thing in the human heart that is able to perceive that in what appears to be very ordinary, there are such depths. There is, as Gerard Manley Hopkins said, the dearest freshness deep down things. But we're losing our capacity in all of our distractions to just kind of perceive and notice and look at people and just admire God's creation and be thankful. And I think we also should acknowledge we have a negativity bias, right? We very easily, this is even a, just a, a thing in our brains, we tend to be most aware, most aware of what we don't like. You know, I don't notice the thousands of people I pass on the street of New York City who treat me just fine. The one person that is a bit of a jerk, I'm going to remember. And that we're like that with people. We tend to label and dismiss people according to our negativity bias. We see the things that hurt. We see the things that frustrate. And we are culturally conditioned in our world, our modern world, to treat people instrumentally, by which I just mean we tend to judge people by whether they are useful. You know, do they contribute in some way? And I think here we can learn from brothers and sisters who have had to care for and have learned to delight in the sick, the dying, the disabled, who have learned to see in one that we might tend to view as a burden, a gift, to say to one who maybe is incapable of contributing anything in any sort of natural sense, it is good that you exist. God made you, and that is delightful. I am privileged to get to relate to you. That is, that is gratitude. And you notice that gratitude, giving thanks, we, it's not only seeing what others are as God's creation. It is accepting what they are not. Gratitude calls forth in us a real compassion for other people's frailties. People are frail. They are. We're all frail. And gratitude calls forth an acceptance of people's limits. And because we don't idolize people, right? This No person can be God to me, can fill all my needs, make me happy. You know, I, 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 gratitude is acknowledging this person is both a gift and there are many things this person is not. And that's okay. 
because they are who God made them to be with all the frailties and, and limits as well as the, the tremendous gifts and capacities. And because I'm not worshiping them, I'm just receiving them as a gift, I'm able to relate to them with freedom and joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by the way, you know, not being grateful for the people God has put in your life, let's be clear, it is a sin. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together, talks about this. He says, quote, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we've been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. When a person becomes alienated from a Christian community in which he's been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he'd better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that should be shattered by God, and if this be the case, let him thank God for leading him into this predicament, unquote. Giving thanks. This brings us to another practice. The utterly necessary practice of showing mercy. Showing mercy. We can be under no delusions when God says, put on, put on add, diligently increase in brotherly affection and love. I have a mental image where it's all kind of has this warm glow, you know, and everyone's just sweet and nice and it's awesome. We can be under no delusions. We are developing brotherly affection and love for brethren who, like us, are sinners. There will be those among us for whom at times we feel no affection. In fact, we don't really want to love. There will be those among us who will withhold brotherly affection from us in ways that will be extremely painful. There will be those among us who wound us, who wrong us profoundly, Many of you know that in what has been called the safest place on earth, the church, sometimes it's far from it. That among the brothers and sisters God has called us to love, we may sometimes meet someone who is a real taker, who is very ungenerous, very inhospitable, no room in their life, selfish, proud, a fool, a prude. You may meet even among the brothers and sisters, one who is actually a real hypocrite, a bully, even a betrayer. Now, love is not passive. Mercy is not passive. Love will speak truth. Love will rebuke. Love will certainly call to higher and better things. Love will even sometimes separate from one who is walking in open sin. But the heart of mercy beloved saints, is a way of seeing this other person. This person is a fellow sinner. My word, God, takes me down off my high horse. Like my job is watching over the moral lives of God's people. And God has to take me off my high horse so very often when I get the slightest flicker in myself that somehow I am doing this from a place of superiority. When your heart is frustrated and angry with someone else who is a real sinner and they are sinning and it's not at all wrong that you feel that sense that this is wrong and there's been injustice and this person's got serious character issues that in itself is not a wrong recognition but mercy tempers that with the acknowledgement i am also looking in the mirror this is me and if it is not me in practice that is by grace alone god holds us back from being so much worse than we could be 
And this is a fellow sinner whom God, for his mere good pleasure, not out of strict justice, but out of his mere good pleasure, he has pursued this sinner at infinite cost. And so, for little me, as I am relating with this fellow sinner, I must acknowledge that no matter how difficult they are, this brother, this sister is worth bearing with. They are worth suffering for because Jesus did. They are worth pouring into because Jesus did. They are worth forgiving, worth covering, worth even carrying sometimes. Any of you who have ever lived in a family know mercy is the absolutely necessary grease in the gearbox of relations. A merciless, graceless home is a hellhole. And so is a church that does not have this. Stir up brotherly affection. Stir up love by showing mercy. The last practice I think that we could think about is sharing help. Sharing help. Giving thanks, showing mercy, and sharing help. I don't think perhaps we realize, brothers and sisters, how damaging it has been to our spiritual lives that in our culture today we are expected to live independent natural lives. I don't know if we realize how damaging it's been to our spiritual lives that in our world today it's expected that you're in your natural life you're to live independent. You've all kind of got it together on your own. It is interesting the fact that, you know, like Jesus, the fact that we are all born as helpless infants shows us that even in our natural lives, God's intent for human beings is that we would grow interdependently. Every one of you began as a little helpless child in somebody's arms. And that interdependence of relationships doesn't actually change when you become mature. All it means is that perhaps the balance of giving and receiving changes, where now you might be the one holding the infant. You might be the one who's now giving more rather than receiving quite so much, but there is always this ecosystem of giving and receiving. God designed life to be lived that way. And when it comes to our growth in what the Bible calls holiness or excellence, growing in Christ, the Bible explicitly says that members of the body of Jesus grow in the body. You cannot, I cannot develop these excellences that we've been studying together on our own. You will not develop moral excellence alone. You will not develop knowledge alone. You cannot develop self-control. What does self-control even mean if you're alone? You cannot develop steadfastness or godliness, much less brotherly affection or love apart from the body. That is where it grows. We need one another, and we should be sharing help in our natural and spiritual lives. And it's a great privilege to do that. It's such a comfort to do that. It's so refreshing. And so it's an opportunity for the body of Christ in our time. You know, there's so many vocal concerns now, and you hear them all the time, I'm sure, about loneliness, rampant loneliness, polarization. People talk about how superficial many of our ways of relating have become, and that may all be true. But it is our privilege in the body of Jesus to exert ourselves in actually helping each other grow. And then, as we help one another grow, we can start doing together what we are incapable of doing alone. There is so much kingdom work that cannot be done individually. It must be done when we're all pulling in the same direction. There are mere churchgoers who do not care about growing these excellences, and they won't care about sharing help. But we do. We do, as the body of Christ, because it mirrors the love of our God. So here's my wish list for 2023. 
not wish listing that I don't already see this stuff going on, but just some points of focus, and Ken Flurry and I have been doing some deep thinking that we're going to show you guys some fruit of at the congregational meeting, but this would be kind of a wish list for our church, thinking about brotherly affection and love in the coming year. It would be so wonderful to see every single member of this congregation practicing some spiritual discipline with another member of the congregation. Every one of us practicing some spiritual discipline with some other member of, this of the congregation. Second thing, all of us sharing physical resources, sharing food, sharing resources we have in our homes, perhaps even sharing money, sharing time, just sharing. Where one has need and another has excess, sharing together, physical resources. Thirdly, all of us having personal conversations together, learning how to do this, personal conversations about stuff in our lives that actually matters, stuff that we really care about, stuff that is personal, and praying together about those things. Opening up our homes, letting our spaces be places in which we welcome others in, some that we've known a long time, some that are really strangers, and sharing meals together and breaking bread together. And also, every one of us in this coming year identifying a mentor and at least one mentee, someone we are mentoring, someone we are discipling in the body of Christ, not necessarily at Trinity, but for every single one of us would have a mentor from whom we are receiving discipling and at least one person in whom we are investing as disciplers. Even if you're a child, find a younger child. And that, I think, brothers and sisters, a body that's working, putting effort into developing those kind of practices will be a very exciting place to live and a place where the wonderful, generous love of God, full of his infinite good pleasure, will be mirrored in our lives together on earth. Amen. Father, work in us, we pray, that in our life together we will show your glory. In Jesus' good name, amen.